Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Dan Ariely, a leading behavioral economist, author, entrepreneur, and the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. Dan is also a founding partner of Irrational Capital, an investment research firm that quantifies the impact of corporate culture and employee motivation on financial performance. My initial conversation with Dan two years ago has been one of the most downloaded episodes of the show, and a recent research piece by J.P. Morgan entitled The Human Capital Factor that highlights his work got me excited to catch up with him again. Our conversation covers many aspects of his continuing research to identify positive human capital practices and performance in the workplace, including data collection and assessment, gender differences, goodwill, ESG, and changes during COVID. We then turn to the practical application of the research in the capital markets through two indexes and customized research. We close by talking about Dan's new research project and some of his favorite recent answers to his Ask Ariely column in the Wall Street Journal. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Ariely. Dan, great to see you. Lovely to see you too. It's been a long time. It's been a little while. And I would love to start with when you first came on the show, we talked a bunch about your research and some of those incredible stories and insights. And then we also started talking about what was the beginning formation of irrational capital and this model you had built. 
So what's happened in the last couple of years with the business and the model? So first of all, just kind of to remind uh, all of us, we started on this journey about four years ago to try and quantify human capital. And it started from my basic research on human motivation, and we moved toward understanding how companies treat their employees, how employees feel about the company, and what impact this has on the performance of the company in the stock market. And we had some really good interesting results suggesting that it's a really wonderful place to look for excess returns. And uh, when we talked last, we, we found all kinds of interesting things that fit with social science, right? So we found that overall level of compensation doesn't matter so much. Fairness, perception of fairness in compensation matters a lot. So we found lots of these nuggets. And the argument was that it would be incredibly important to to invest based on that. How could you not? And one of the things that puzzles me is that if you gave people that information, how many people would say, oh, yes, I, I want to ignore this. I don't think that human capital is important. I don't think employee motivation is important. Of course, it has to be, it has to be crucial. Since then, we've done a couple of things. We've expanded our data. One, we did a huge study during COVID to understand what's going on during COVID. We try to understand what does this have to do with ESG? And we try to look at it in terms of gender issues. And we're even more confident now that this is a good signal and a very good strategy for investment. So those are the top lessons. Great. Well, let's go through each one. So let's just start with data. What's evolved in the discovery of these data sets and how you've accessed them? So we started with a proprietary data set, and that was what we did our initial analysis on. This was a data set that gave us information on companies from 2006. And we also started looking at other sources of data. Think about things that, like including a glass door in terms of all kinds of things. And the thing about it, if you look at something like Glassdoor and you don't know where to look at, you're not going to find much. But with our proprietary data, we basically knew what to look for. So we could find some interesting things there as well. And then thankfully, we got another really amazing data partner that gave us a tremendous amount of new data to look at. And what's really good about this new data provider is that this data provider is not just interested in giving data, he's interested in figuring out over time what other questions we might want to ask. So if you think about these employee surveys that companies do, what would you ask if you were interested in financial returns? So we can ask, of course, questions like, how happy are you with your salary? Right? Or how fair is promotion in this place? So we can ask about psychological safety and so on. But we could ask all kinds of new questions. So we basically started a new era in which we're not just consuming existing data, but we can also explore new opportunities. And that has increased the value of what we're doing. Is that main methodology through surveys? Yes. So our main methodology is through surveys. And I know that it's a really interesting question of, is this the right method? So let's look at something like pain. It turns out that when you look at pain, there's no better methodology than to ask people, how much pain are you feeling? We can't measure your neural activity and infer from it correctly how much pain you feel because it's such a subjective experience and we don't understand how to record it. We don't know how to record it at the brain level. We don't know how to record it in inaccuracy at the receptor level. So we end up saying, how much pain do you feel on this scale from no pain at all to a lot of pain? The same thing is true for other things. And when we ask the question of how excited are you to wake up every morning and go to work, what could we substitute it with? We could substitute it whether you get to work on time, but it's a very noisy signal. Maybe if we could measure the jump in your step as you walk to the office, that would be something useful. But the reality is that a lot of the things that we want are things that are happening inside people's brains. And I wish there was a better way to get this data, but there isn't. And when we don't look at what's happening inside people's brains and we look at other things instead, 
we're giving up a lot. So for example, think about something like sick days. Sick days is obviously a really good indication of how excited people are about work. But it's a very rough indication. For each one individual, you wouldn't know that there's sick day. Like if you take a whole company and you look at changes in sick day over years, it would include things like seasonal flu. It would include all kinds of things. It includes some signal about commitment to work. But I sadly still think that the best way to do it is to just ask people. And maybe one other thing about this is that when we ask people with these data providers, it is very important that the data is being collected by a third party. You know, if the company is trying to collect the data directly from employees, there's always a risk that people are trying to create some impression, impression management within the company. But if it's done on the third party website and the information is going to be only presented in aggregated ways, we have a better chance of getting good data about this. You also mentioned with Glassdoor, which we're all familiar with, you have to kind of know what you're looking for. What's an example of something that you could take the data from something available like that and know what you're looking for? So I'll give you an example. One of the things we find is that it's not about just the overall level of, let's say, feeling appreciated. So we find that feeling appreciated is a very good signal. But it's not just the overall level of being appreciated. It's the difference between how management and rank and file employees feel about being appreciated. We call this alignment. And companies that the gap between how they treat management and how they treat employee is very large are companies that are actually less productive in the stock market because there's a gap. And we mentioned the issue of relativity. Relative pay is more important. Relative fairness is more important. Fairness is all about relativity. The same thing is true about employees versus management. So if you look at Glassdoor and you want to understand better the information, it is really good to try and separate the role that people have. And if you find that people are complaining equally at management and at the level of the employee, this is not as a bad signal as if management is not complaining and employees are complaining much more. So that's an example for what to look at. As you've looked at all of this research into this collective human capital factor, how have you broken down, I don't know if you think of it as a taxonomy or a list of all of these different things that you found can impact stock price performance? So the things that we find can, there are different types of things that are important. One of the most important one, I think of under the category of goodwill. So think about the difference between the minimum of work you have to do to keep your job and the maximum you could do if you're truly excited. And we all have to admit there's a big gap between those two. Right, And companies can contract on the minimum amount of work you need to do, but nobody can contract on how much energy you're really putting toward work, how imaginative you're trying to be, how much you're reading extra, thinking hard, and so on. And that really comes from aligning your own utility function with the organization's utility function. And it means that when your organization does better, you feel like you're doing better as well. You're not separating it. Think about your significant other. You're not saying, oh, every ounce of happiness the other person gets takes away from my ounce of happiness. So every dollar they spend takes away from my dollar. No, it's a, it's a joint utility function. We are better off when they're doing better. And that's one of the most important things. So what does it mean? It means that you feel appreciated. It means you have autonomy. It means the bureaucratic burden is not drowning you. And there's another really interesting aspect there. And it's that you feel that people judge you based on your intentions and not based on the outcome. Every organization wants people to try new things. But if you tell people, please try new things, figure out how to make things better. But if you make a mistake, I'll punish you. How likely are people to? try new things. 
I have the privilege that in addition to irrational capital, I also am a professor at Duke and I have a research center where about 50 people here mostly work on financial decision-making and health. And I try to get people in the center to take failure seriously. I try to tell them you should aim for about 50% of the experiments failing. And what I mean by that is that I want them to take risk. I don't want them to make stupid mistakes. But I want people to take risks because without risk, you, you know, if you say let's do improvement that are sure things, they're going to be tiny ones. If you want like people to swing for the fences, you need to accept risk. So one bucket of things is about taking on the utility company of the organization. I want the organization to do well. I'm willing to take risk. I'm willing to work extra hard. I feel connected. The utility function is the same. That would be one important thing. Another important thing is, as we said, fairness. So that's an important aspect. The third one has to do with all voices being heard. And this, by the way, we found one of the things that changed during COVID is what we call inclusive innovation has increased in its importance. Because imagine a group of 10 people around the table and you have a physical meeting like we used to have back in the day. And you have a physical meeting and everybody participates. And of course, there'll be some people who participate a lot and some people don't participate that much. The moment you move to a digital platform like Zoom, the people who don't participate can have zero participation. So, and all of a sudden, important voices around the table get to be completely ignored. Some companies are worse at this. They allow more of this to happen, and some companies are, are better at that. So, in general, those would be the main factor. A utility function, low bureaucracy, autonomy, feeling that mistakes are acceptable, and risk is encouraged giving everybody a voice in the company and fairness. Those would be the big buckets. And there are, of course, things that are connected to many of them, like psychological safety ends up being very important, but it connects to a lot of those. I'm curious about some of the inputs that go into some of those outputs. So some of these things, psychological safety is part of the process how someone is producing almost as a function of an output. How do you think about say, the impact of leadership, the style of management, and things like that as it relates to these human capital factors? Before we go there, I, I want to say something about gender, because it's not just about gender, it's also about the, the measurement issue. So in the US, there's a, an index called the She Index. What they do is, and it's a very nice idea, they go and they count what is the percentage of women on the board, and what is the percentage of women in high positions in the company? And if you think about it, what you really want to know is how do women feel in that company? But it's hard to measure how women feel in that company. So what do they measure instead? Something that is easy, like what percentage of women are on the board and in high positions in a company? Now, let me ask you, what would you predict how well does this index does compare to the S&P 500, for example, the last four years? Maybe a little bit better, but it's so easy to lose signal and noise in that type of metric. Yeah. So it does much worse. Systematically, repeatedly by a big gap. Now, is that because it's a good idea to mistreat women? Of course not. When we look at our data and we ask the question of, what is the gap? We said a lot of things are about relativity. So we said for each company, let's calculate the gap between how men feel and how women feel. Like, you know, do you feel appreciated? What's the gap? And so on. And that index gives about 5% over the S&P per year. What is the index? Is it the narrowness of the gap leads to outperformance? We take the 20% companies who have the narrowest gap between men and women. And we said, what if we invested in those 20%? Imagine you take the S&P, 
and you say, let's take all the companies in the S&P we have data for, and we will take the 20% companies that the gap between men and women is the lowest. And now, it's, there are very few companies where the gap is zero, but that creates a real substantial return. Now, how do you deal with these two seemingly opposing facts? You look at our approach, we find big returns to treating women well. You look at the she index, it looks like a negative effect. What's the truth here? How do you look at it? And it turns out that, and this is really important, that often we measure what's easy in terms of what's important. And if you think about the she index, nobody, nobody in the right mind would think that if you assign more women to the board, that by itself would change a company. It's a perfectly great first step, but it wouldn't change the company. What people think is that this would lead to more equality of women down the line. But it turns out that if you have a check the box approach, it doesn't because you stop at that. So I want to make two points. The first one is that we need to measure what we really want to measure. And when we create proxies to remember that we make this assumption. So we say, okay, we're measuring women at the board and at top level. What do we think? We think that their existence will basically change the way women feel across the company. It's an assumption, untested, but if it doesn't, that index will not work. And the second thing we need to remember is that when we measure easy things, we can create a check the box approach to companies rather than trying to get them to really deal with the problem. And we found a little bit of that. We found that some companies, when they assign women to high positions, the women within these companies feel worse. Why? Because they take it as an indication that the company doesn't really care about them, that they're only doing things to appeal to PR, like window dressing. And as a consequence, they feel even less cared about and so on. So one is we need to figure out what we really want to measure and to measure it as directly as possible. And the second, we need to recognize that when we move to systems that have the check the box approach, people might be able to do the check the box methodology without dealing with the underlying problem. Are there other examples that were blaring in your research that you saw a common check the box approach to get at something that the real data or what you're trying to measure was actually the opposite? Not as bad as the opposite as this index. But I will tell you that if you think about things like better coffee, better tables, better chairs, compared to feeling appreciated, there's just no comparison. And the thing that happens there is if you get better coffee, and I'm a big fan of coffee, so I, I love good coffee. If you get better coffee or a better chair, you get used to it. Feeling appreciated is something that is almost daily. You don't get used to it in the same way. Or lack of fairness is not something you get used to. That's one thing. And then another one is ESG. Now, in my mind, there are two reasons to do ESG. The first one is the moral thing to do, right? You're saying, let's have less reliance on energy. It's the moral thing to do. But there are lots of discussions out there about ESG being a profitable strategy. And that's a different story, right? Saying the moral thing to do, that's great. But when you say it's a profitable strategy, here's a place where I lose people a little bit. Because if people say it's a profitable strategy, I want them to tell me how. Like, what's the pathway from ESG to being profitable? And I can see three ways. One is reducing cost. You're saying, well, we're going to become ESG. We're going to start considering other things that we didn't think about before. Maybe less plastic. Maybe this will become more efficient. And we'll reduce cost. That's one possibility. I think it's a relatively small one but it's a possibility. Another one is you'll say, well, we will come up with more creative ways of doing things in the future. We'll figure out better efficiency. 
But I think that the real pathway for ESG goes through employee motivation. If you think about it, the moment you are doing some version of ESG, presumably your employees are more on board. They feel that the company has better goals, the company is more connected to the future, taking care of their kids, all kinds of good things that come through employee motivation. But when companies do ESG, I don't think they really think about the pathway. I don't think the pathway by which ESG goes and creates profitability. Now, the moral thing to do, perfectly fine. But what about the profitability part? And we find, if you look at our results, we have like 6% a year of alpha of treating your employees well does better. That's a direct path. And with the ESG, I see a lot of companies go through the check the box approach. Again, doing something mechanical rather than thinking about what's the underlying mechanism that goes here. A company is like a complex machine. And you want to ask, like, what is the energy that runs this machine? And how do you get more of it? And how do you get it to be, you know, better running machine? So, so I think ESG, which I think is incredibly important, people are doing it without deeply thinking about what it really means and more with too much of the check the box approach. And I think it's a shame because I think ESG... Look, in the same way that the human capital index gives so much return, there could be other opportunities out there. But people are not really thinking carefully enough about the mechanism, and that's a shame. I'm curious how you think about the application of the research that you found. So on the one hand, irrational capital, there's now a human capital index that you created, and you've shown that it's outperformed. On the other hand, you have all these insights that companies could deploy to make them much better companies. How have you thought about where you want to make the most impact? So I think about three separate ways. One is we have an index, you can invest, you can give companies who are better to their employees more money. You would also want to make this public. You would make this public so that companies who want to raise more money would say, hey, we're treating our employees better give us money in the same way that companies do ESG. Let's double down on that. I also think that companies need to start changing the roles of HR. HR in most companies is a procedural legal function. They do the sexual misconduct and the module. They worry about procedural things. I think that HR needs to be an R&D function. They need to continuously try different things and improve how the company is running. I don't think there's one recipe for all companies. You know, everybody wants to be appreciated. People want to feel that they can make honest mistakes. All of this is true. The path to get to those might be different for different companies. And HR needs to be the function that improves things dramatically. So I think one is there's the index. Two is I want companies to start caring elevating the role of HR. And the last thing is that I'm hoping that people who want to invest seriously in a company would do their homework, including homework on human capital before they invest. So let's say you have an activist investor, they want to buy a percentage of a company and to start influencing it. What homework do they do and how much is their homework influenced by human capital? Probably not that much now. But I hope that they would. And I think that a lot of investors, a lot of activist investors, look at companies where they don't like the culture and they say, let me buy that company and, and influence the culture. But I don't think they systematically understand the culture. And what we have created is a systematic way to understand the culture as it refers to potential success in the stock market. So it's not everything but it's a lot of very important elements. So if we break that down a little bit, you've now productized this index, it sounds like. So we have two indices. We have one index that is general about human capital, and we have another index which is about the gender equality. And both of those are doing, in general, very well. 
you can ask the question of like, what happens during COVID? Have our factors gone, become less important, more important? And of course, in the history of the stock market, COVID, it's a short window. But we did a study with about 1,400 companies during this period. We took the things that happened in the stock market from March until the end of October. And we looked at our results and we said, are the things that important in our results in the past still important and what impact have they led to? And what we found was that everything that we found before became even more important. The companies in general, if I remember correctly, between March and, and October, the stock market lost a lot and then gained a lot, and it was about 5% net overall. The companies that I'll tell you now about went up by 15%. That's a big gap. And those companies worked a lot on appreciation, which we said was incredibly important. They worked on inclusive innovation how to get everybody around the table to participate, to talk, to give their... And it's companies that the CEO helped employees see the mission of the company. During COVID, it was easier to just hunker down and, and worry about the daily issues, but the long-term effect of where the company is going was incredibly important. And if you take those three components, they made a huge gap between the companies who were doing average and the companies who were doing exceptionally well. And we found one other thing that they changed from before COVID. So before COVID, we found that employee benefits didn't make a big difference. Financial benefits, health benefits didn't matter. During COVID, there was actually a positive effect of these benefits. And I think it's because of a period where people are more worried. People are more worried about what's happening in health, what's happening in retirement, and so on. So, so those benefits became more important, not more important than feeling appreciated or anything like that, but became from being almost not important all to becoming slightly important. Now, I think that will go away. But it was interesting to see how this timing did change a little bit the mix of what was important. So a couple of questions about both the research and the index strategies connected to each other. So the first is, and maybe COVID is a good example, there was this bifurcation of performance of companies, depending on whether they were technologically savvy versus sort of old economy or in-person type businesses. So how do you think about the differences in these factors across sectors in your research? So we didn't do this research during COVID, but we did, of course, in the pre-COVID data, right, from 2006 and on, and we found no difference. When you do kind of statistical modeling, there's what's called nested models. So you could say, let me create a model for within each sector, manufacturing, uh, consumer goods, IT, and let me also create a factor across everything. And let's see whether the nested model, where I allowed the model to change within each sector, is better in any way. And it wasn't. It wasn't better. Now, let's take something like honest mistakes are valued. And of course, that means something very different in manufacturing than non-manufacturing. But nevertheless, it means something. And it means something important in both of those. And I have to say that before we started this research, I had an approach that I could see how autonomy would be incredibly important for IT. I didn't really see where it would be important in manufacturing. And now this is my bias. But after this, I talked to a guy who was working in a pipe factory. He was a guy in a pipe factory, and there was a percentage of their pipes that were cracked, and they just throw them away. Now, this guy was unhappy with the percentage of cracked pipes. So he started his own research on this. 
Now, I don't know if you know, but pipes, when you pour hot metal, you have to pour it over some liquid. In the same way that in an engine you have oil, you need some lubricant. What's the lubricant for metal? It's glass. So they would pour it over shreds of glass. And he found out that these shreds of glass were taken from windshields. And he found out that during some years, GM had antennas in the windshield. So there was tiny amounts of metal, and that was what created the cracks. Now, here's a guy in what we think of as a very, very standard manufacturing job who took it on himself to do an investigating process that took him about half a year to find out why there were too many cracks. And by the way, this is not the whole story. There was recently a paper that showed that if you compare Walmart to Target, you go to Walmart and you ask the employee, hey, is there something in the back? This thing is missing from the shelf. Can you check if it's in the back? They pretend to go and check, but they don't really check. On the other hand, in Target, they actually go and check. And these are big differences. There are big differences about people care. And we can all imagine how people who care at Google are going to create a bigger impact. But no, people who care, it would manifest everywhere. So the things that we're capturing, feeling appreciated, feeling that your utility function and the employer's utility function are more similar, feeling that your voice is heard, feeling autonomy, not having too much bureaucracy. All of those things are important across, across the board. Now, they mean something slightly different, but are incredibly important across the board. So when you go to construct these indexes to isolate this human capital factor, are you normalizing across sectors, maybe compared to in the US, the S&P 500 sectors, or are there significant sector biases that come into play just because those are how those companies are run? Yeah. So we, in our standard index, we don't normalize per sector. And we do it on purpose. We do it on purpose because we think that human motivation changes with sector over the years. Think about you. You've been a banker for a long time. How did it feel like to be a banker in 2008? Not so good. What does it mean to work in Google or Facebook right now? when we question their role in the destruction of democracy and all kinds of other things. So if you want to truly take human motivation into account, I think you should be sector agnostic. Now, of course, if you wanted to use our data and create something that is waste sector specifically, you could do that for different reasons. But from pure human motivation, I think you should ignore it. But there's another thing to realize is that we talked a little bit about what we found during COVID. The world after COVID is probably going to be a world in which there's more work from home for some people. And one of the reasons that COVID gave us a, a time where our factor was even more important is because the role of intrinsic motivation became higher. If you go to an office and there are people around, you have to pay attention. You go to a meeting, you can't completely check out. I'm thinking about kids, right? If kids are in school and the teacher is watching them, they have to focus. And now to some degree, right? They can't completely read something else. You take a kid, you put them at home with Zoom, they can turn the teacher off. And the same thing happens for employees. You put employees at home all of a sudden, the role of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation changes dramatically. And because so many of the things we measure are about intrinsic motivation, I think the importance of those things will be higher. So if you ask me what do I think would happen as the world moves forward, I think that our index will become more important for jobs where people are going to use the hybrid model of working from home and still would become very important for even people in, in factories, but there's a chance it will become even more important for the people who work at home at least some of the week. 
Once you've done your work and ranked these companies based on whatever the model tells you in terms of the success of their human capital management, how do you then take that and construct this index? So we're working on our pure index. And in our pure index, we basically take the top 20% of companies we have. We don't rank them within that 20%. And we just invest equally in each of them. And we rebalance quarterly. And that's what gives the excess return that we talked about of slightly more than 6% a year. We have worked with some partners that have other requirements as well. So one partner, for example, said that they do want to keep the balance of the different sectors. So in that case, what we do is we don't say, here's a 20%, but we basically use their constraints as well. So we say, let's take each sector, and within each sector, we'll give you the top companies. If somebody came and they said, oh, but we want another ESG lens, we could do that. But our pure index, which is both interesting and important because it tells you what is the signal. Now, you can decide that it's not the only signal in the world and you want to combine it with something else, which is perfectly fine. But the pure signal is, let's take all the companies, rank them by human capital, take the top 20%, equally weight them, rebalance once a quarter. And we want to make sure that that gives high returns. Now, after that, you could do other things with it to take other things into account. How do you think about the refreshing of this data in terms of frequency and how dynamic or stable is it? Yeah. So in general, what we find is that this data has a half lifetime of about 18 months. And it's actually what you want, right? You want the data to be valid, but you want the value of it to go down. Why? And I think about it a little bit like rain and coffee. At some point, the coffee reveals itself. You can see how much coffee beans there are, but the rain gives you a prediction in advance of what will happen. And motivation is the same thing. Human capital is the same thing. At some point, these things will be revealed. At some point, human capital would mean that there's better products, new procedures, all kinds of things that happen. And at some point, other people should be able to view it and make judgment. So you want that data, you want that usefulness to have a limited amount of time. It's the question of what's the cycle of human creativity and so on. I think a year and a half is about right. So with that in mind, I think that refreshing it every year is probably sufficient. If I could refresh every half a year, that would probably be better. Right now, we refresh once a year. How do you think about meaningful changes at the individual company level? So you could think about things like a new management team comes into play or a transaction and a merger. How do you go about factoring those into the pace of change for human capital? So both of those can be incredibly useful and incredibly destructive to companies. And the decision we've made is that when the company's nature changes very dramatically, we no longer think that we have data about that company. So imagine company X, and we have all the data from this company in January, and then in February, they were acquired. What can we say about that company? Or they acquired another company. If we don't think that we can say something about the underlying culture of the company, we basically say we don't know what to do with them anymore. And the same thing can happen for a big change in management. Recently, a big company came to me and said that they heard rumors that somebody doesn't like their culture and they're trying to acquire them. They came to me and said, oh, before somebody acquires us, we want to try and change our culture internally. That's great. Now, it, it was in a different hat that they asked me to do this, but if a company is trying to change something radically, then we have to say that our data is less good, not as accurate, and I would not have as much faith in this. So I would say 
if a company just changed management in dramatic way, merger in some way, we don't know about them. Let's give the new management on the new merger some time, get the data again and see what can we say about them. As you've looked at those types of activities over the last couple of years, what percentage of your universe just gets tossed out because of that lack of data? Very little. It ends up being interesting cases. Our approach is very algorithmic. There's a data comes in, it's sorted out, it's selected, and we don't think we're stock pickers. I certainly think I know more than other people about human capital and social science, not about stocks. And it's tempting when you see these cases like this. You say, oh, you know, I have a theory about this. I have a theory about that. But, but we made a very basic decision saying we're not stock pickers. When we have data, we let the data speak. When we don't have data, we don't let the data speak. And in these cases, we don't think we have data. When you do data analysis, there's always a question of, you know, are you making some, I don't know, discounts? Are you overlooking some things and so on? And the team at JP Morgan did a really nice analysis of our data. They were unbelievably thorough. I, uh, I was deeply impressed by these guys. And it came basically with very good analysis and result. And it's kind of nice to have somebody like a third. It's a little nerving when you have a third party evaluate your data. But when they come up with the same results exactly, it is very, very nice. And so they looked at our data and that further increased our confidence. And what they also found was that, and this was not analysis that we did initially, they found that our results are uncorrelated with lots of other things, which of course is wonderful, including being uncorrelated with ESG. By the way, the reason I think it's uncorrelated with ESG is the reason we talked about earlier is that some companies do ESG without involving employee motivation and some do. So it's basically uncorrelated, but it's also uncorrelated with other things that they, they look at, which is great, right? Because now you say we have another factor. It's at the heart of what you want to do morally. It's financially useful and it's uncorrelated. What more can you want? Can you ask? How has the gender index process differed in its construction and methodology than the true index, as you called it? So we had lots of questions and we figure out the 18 questions that are the most important ones, like bureaucracy, honest mistakes, and so on. For the gender index, we included all the questions that we had, more questions, and we didn't look at high versus low. We look at the difference. So men versus women. And in that regard, it's about capturing the unease that women have in a company. And that uneasiness can come from lots of different, lots of different places. It doesn't have to come from the things that are important for human motivation in the stock market, right? So for example, let's say you have a question about quality of furniture. And we find that in general, quality of furniture doesn't really matter for stock market performance or employee benefits don't really matter. But if women feel that they're worse off on that regard, it adds to the picture of gender inequality. So for gender inequality, it's a broader, the measure takes into account more things. And we look at the gap. So for example, a company that mistreats everybody is much better in this regard than a company that mistreats women. So when you look at that resulting portfolio of gender where there are fewer mismatches in how people are treated, do those resulting companies tend to be ones that treat both sides good or bad relative to what would show up in the true index? So there's a correlation with the true index, but it's not overlapping. It's not completely overlapping. There are companies who are different and the returns are slightly different as well. The return of the, um, the real index was designed to maximize returns from the beginning with no other constraint. The gender index was taking the best we had, but limiting it to companies who do well on, on gender. So it does not as well. Maybe we have something like slightly more than 6% returns and about a percent less 
than that for the gender. Do you find that the companies that treat their gender segmentation the same, so would make it into the gender index, that also would make it into the true index because they're doing well on both sides, do better than the ones who treat people the same, but they're sort of equal opportunity offenders? I haven't looked at that. I think you could basically say there are all these companies, right? The companies who make it to the regular index and don't, companies who make it to the gender index and not, and we can look at the four quadrants of this. My guess, and I'm just guessing here because I haven't done this analysis, my guess is that the companies who are doing good on both are, are much better. Because, you know, these things, the thing about treating people well, it doesn't happen automatically. This is, comes out of intention and care. And it, it comes with, for example, feeling appreciated. People have to have a different approach to management. Uh, reducing bureaucracy has to come with like real trust of people. It's effortful to figure out how to treat people well. It's not magical because a lot of people's intuitions are wrong about what motivates people. Right? People say, oh, let's just get uh, more benefit and let's increase average salary and let's get better coffee. The things that you really want to do are different than that. And people need to work hard at that. And my guess is the companies who are working hard on this are, are doing it across the board. Just that there's some people who focus more on gender and some people focus more on everybody. And so there's some differences as well. So Dan, for those people who are interested in what you've done here, where can we find your products? What we are good at is research. We're good at collecting data, data analysis, data science, and we're good at developing different signals and investable strategies. Based on that, we teamed up with partners who have strength in different areas, partners who are strong in creating and distributing investment products in a wide range of forms, mutual funds, ETF, SMAs, and all kinds of other structures. If you're interested in finding out anything else about what we're up to, please visit our website, irrational.capital. And we would love to discuss any future products, directions, investment, strategies, and also what we could do to make the world embrace to a higher degree these notions of human capital. Well, Dan, normally I would ask a couple of closing questions, but I think I asked all the ones I usually do the first time. So I have two different things that will be super interesting to talk about. The first is I always love asking you what is new and interesting in your research. Okay. So before we started, I told you that I have been recently attacked by some people as the one me and Bill Gates bring Corona to the world. There's a conspiracy theorists that you probably heard some about and so I'm, I'm forced to try to understand conspiracy theory better, and I'm forced to trying to understand the anti-vaxxers better, particularly with this. I'll tell you two, maybe I'll tell you one interesting thing about conspiracy theories. There's a new research that shows that looks at 67 countries and show that the more violence there is in a country, the more they have conspiracy theories about COVID-19. And the idea there is that when you are living in a society with more violence, you're basically pushed towards simplifying the world and feeling that you understand it. That's um, understanding pressure, right, to, to understand it. Of course, I can tell you more about that. But the other thing is that when COVID-19 started, there was a question of, you know, what is hospital's capacity in terms of putting people in respirators? And actually, I was on a respirator for a long time because I was a, a burn patient. I was in the hospital for a long time. And, and my experience being on a respirator was not a positive one. Actually, nobody has a positive experience. I, of course, survived, but but was a terrible. And I, and I wondered why, how many people wanted to be on the respirator versus how many people would say, no, I, I don't want to, to live like this. So I'm starting now research about end of life not to depress you, but we end every meal with chocolate or you know, dessert, or like on a high note. We end our lives usually on a very low note. And I am very curious about whether we can end our lives on a high note. What would it take to make it not as bad and maybe even make it more, more positive? So those are two new topics that I'm pondering these days. I know that you respond to a couple of questions in the Wall Street Journal under the Ask Ariely column. 
And I would just love your thoughts on any of these Q&As that pop into your mind as either fun responses or interesting of the times. So I'll tell you one that I just answered today. So today there's a guy who, I answered him personally. I'm not sure it will make it to the journal or not, but I answered him personally. He said that he's very anxious about the surgery. He need to have a surgery. It's not urgent, but he needs it. And he's very anxious about surgery. And he asked me, what can he do? And of course, reducing anxiety, there's some things you could do like meditation and mindfulness, but it takes a really long time. But what I told him was that on the day when he'll have the surgery, he'll also have some anxiety-reducing medication. Only that now he can't estimate correctly how that would feel because he doesn't have the medication. So I asked him to go to his doctor and to ask him for a prescription for one pill of the same anxiety-reducing medication he will get on the day of the procedure. And I say, take that, and an hour into that, try to estimate. How anxious are you? I said, my guess is that you'll be much less anxious. And just realize at that moment that you're not that anxious. Try to remember that feeling and take it with you and then go and have the medication. This question, by the way, is about how difficult it is for us to estimate emotional states of things we don't experience. And it's also connected to our discussion here today. Because, you know, when you are setting up a motivation for your employees, you're in what we call the outside view. You say, what would motivate them? But you're not within the moment of the motivation. Think about something simple like running. When you think about running, you think about, oh, I need to put my shoes on, start running, I'll be out of breath, and so on. When you're 10 minutes into it, your mind is very, very different. But it's very hard for you to imagine the 10 minutes into it, how you would feel. And this is one of the reasons this, what we call this intra-empathy gap, our inability to estimate our own state in a different emotional state, that we make lots of mistakes. Maybe if there was a pill to understand how you would feel when you're truly in a state of flow, when you're enjoying work and thinking about it and so on, maybe people would come up, would take that pill and would come up with better incentive programs for their employees. Terrific. How about any other last parting stories? The last parting stories. I had a birthday yesterday. Oh, happy birthday. And I think that birthday, COVID, these are kind of good opportunities to to think about life. And you know, one of the things we know from behavioral economics is we often continue too long in the same pathways because it's so easy. We do the default, whatever we used to, and so on. And I think COVID changed a lot of what we do. We, of course, all of us cook more. We changed lots of things about us. And soon COVID will be over. It's a few months from now. It would go, it would go away faster than we think if people would get vaccinated. And the question, I think, is what, what do we want to keep from that? If we wait three months, we will not remember the lessons that we want to keep. So I think now is about the right time. So yesterday, I, I kind of took a day off, and I was trying to reflect about what I've learned. What are the things that I do very differently now than I did before? And what are the things that I want to, I want to keep? So you know that before COVID, I traveled about 300 days a year. <laughs> Now I haven't, right? It's very, very different. What is the right mixture? And, you know, within the, the haze of traveling 300 days a year, you can't really think about what it is that you really want. So starting fresh is a good idea. So whether you have a birthday or not, take the opportunity in the near future, reflect on life, make a list so it's printed somewhere, not just in your mind, and Think about what kind of things from COVID you want to keep and what kind of things you want to go back to. So Dan, as a road warrior, which you have been, where did you come out in your thinking for the post-COVID world? So I think the world is an amazing place and I want to see more of it. But certainly I want to make sure that every place I go to, I have a chance to see it. I made a list of all the countries and cities I've been to and I haven't seen anything in those places it was a depressing list. So 
I think traveling is great. Maybe not 300 days a year, but traveling is great. But the way I did traveling, which is looking for night flights so I can land somewhere, work throughout the day and take a night flight back was not, was not the right strategy. So making sure that we see things, that's one. And the other thing is that I don't know about you, but I'm not a good alone traveler. When I sit and watch the sunset with somebody, I can certainly watch the sunset and enjoy it. When I'm by myself, I'm just not that good. I say, okay, there's sunset. <laughs> Let's go on. I have some emails to answer. I don't know how to fix that yet, but I want to work on being a better traveler by myself, being a little less impatient, taking the moments a bit longer. Not, not sure how to get there, but that's one of the things I want to do. Dan, thanks again so much for uh, rejoining me. It was great fun. Lovely to talk to you again, and I hope we'll do it again. Uh, last time it was like two years. Maybe next time we'll make it 18 months or something. Hey, that sounds good. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 